I suppose I would like for y'all to do that one again, right? <laughs> what an excellent song. Praise the Lord. And wonderful uh, piano playing for Miss Debbie and just great harmony with voices. Just appreciate you ladies so much. And <clears throat> the ministry of song and what it does to our lives, it helps us to take what we have in our minds and <clears throat> drop it into our heart so that we worship the Lord in our affections, which should be moved through good theology to praise the Lord. In these initial stops on the first missionary journey, uh, with the preaching of the gospel and through the preaching of the gospel of Paul and Barnabas, uh, it's going to be met with mixed reaction. You remember how that the church, with great excitement and anticipation, they thrust forward the very first missionaries. Remember, they're coming out of the first international church established in Acts 13 or prior to Acts 11 uh, in Antioch. And then here in chapter 13, we have the church sending forth missionaries, Paul and Barnabas. And now we're deep into that first missionary journey and we've heard Paul's first sermon. And today we're going to listen as the Word explains to us what the reactions were to that first sermon. You know, sermons have fruit. They produce things. Remember, in Isaiah, it says the Word of God will not return void. Now, that's speaking primarily of the prophet putting forth the Word and it accomplishing what the sovereign God of the universe would have accomplished. And so, as the Word was preached... There were mixed reactions. Some were enraged by it. Some believed it wholeheartedly and completely. And no matter if they received it or rejected it, the ones who gave the message were filled with joy. That's the way we should be. It's the way I should be when you proclaim the word, you let God perform his work. But no matter what, we're so happy in Jesus, so established by his grace that we are going to rejoice in the Lord no matter what the outcome. So here we, we should expect in our day to encounter similarly mixed results when the Word of God and the Gospel is preached. But in the midst of this, this is a key in this passage, <laughs> central truth, that as there were mixed results and mixed responses and reactions to the Gospel being preached, the book of Acts teaches us that even as people reject the gospel, God's sovereign plan is at work in the salvation of sinners. Amen. That is the overwhelming uh, theological response and summary that Luke gives in this passage we're about to read together. So Luke is going to give us the fruit of the preaching of the word He's, done it. He's going to do it in vivid language for us this morning. So let's begin our reading. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 42. The Bible says, As they went out, where are they leaving from? The synagogue, correct? The people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. 
That word is blasphemeo, which is the word blaspheme. You, didn't, you don't see that in the English, but that's the term. It's blaspheme. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. Think Paul's dealing with the correct kind of crowd control? Paul speaks out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. He's speaking to the Jewish audience. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. What a statement. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, he's quoting Isaiah, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing. Boy, to have a group of women against you, period, is one thing. But those of prominent standing, okay, we're in trouble. And the leading men of the city stirred up the persecution against Paul and Barnabas. Kind of a mob type of violent reaction. Politically driven, howbeit, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Preaching of the Word, mixed reaction, sovereignty of God. Those who were appointed that day believed. And how did the disciples respond, apostles? Joy in the Word of the Lord. That's the central understanding of the passage. But I'm not through preaching, right? We're going to go through this incredible passage of Scripture. There's a great sign that the Holy Spirit was working together with the Word, correct? Which that's the way it always works. Because as they were leaving the synagogue, they were begging to hear more. Boy, it's a good indication that God is at work when people are saying, Bring more of the Word. Preach the Word. We want to hear what God has to say. And that's what's taking place when the Spirit and the Word are at work. And someone, they want to hear more of what God has to say. In verse 43, it reveals that there were many conversions among the Jews and the Gentiles. There's a reason why Luke mentions devout converts. Because remember we talked about you had in the synagogue, you had Jews uh, with the blood of Abraham pumping through their veins. And then you had uh, devout converts or proselytes. Those had even succumbed, succumbed to circumcision. Right? Wow, man, they're all in, right? And then you had others that were God-fearers. Luke highlights the two primary groups of people in the synagogue to show the reader that the, the two prominent groups were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And that was important for his argument and how he was presenting it. So, incidentally, the word followed. Do you notice that? In chapter 13, and as they went, the people gathered. And after the meeting, devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. Do you know that's the word that's used in the New Testament to describe a disciple? It's discipleship language. So they're following them with, which means to attach themselves to Paul and Barnabas in a way that reflects Christian discipleship. That's the only kind of Christian the Bible knows. You understand that to be a disciple is to be a Christian, and to be a Christian is to be a disciple. That's exactly what the Word of God teaches for us. So Paul and Barnabas, 
What do they do initially with the ones who come to faith in Christ? Well, they've been saved by grace. And what is their encouragement? Don't you love this? Urge them to continue in the grace of God. What is it that we should tell new converts to faith in Jesus Christ? It's, it's, it's what we should say to people today. You've been saved by grace through faith. Now continue in it. Continue in the grace of God. So you new believers, even in this building, you, you not only are saved by the grace of God, but you're sustained by the grace of God. It is God's grace that saves us and sustains us in living the Christian life. So that point is brought out. Uh, they want them to continue in it. Why? Because persecution's on the way. Difficulty is on the way. And they're reminding them to stand in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. These people were new converts. I love how Peter will say this at the end of his epistle. In 1 Peter 5.12, he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. What a reminder for all of us that are saved by grace through faith to continue in the grace of God. So the positive response of verse 43 begins to explode in verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That's an amazing verse of Scripture. That anticipation of hearing. It's not quite clear if the people were begging to have a meeting in between the Sabbaths or if they were going to come the next Sabbath. But we know in the text of Scripture from verse 44 that they're anticipating a time that's coming on the Sabbath. And that time is surcharged with excitement because they're anticipating the Word. Can you imagine this scene? Now the people who had been birthed into the family of God by hearing the Word of God and responding to the grace of God, they wanted their friends to come. Correct? The people who were skeptical wanted the other people that were skeptical as their friends to come hear what was said. Right? And even those who were annoyed at them for putting forward a crucified Jew for the means of salvation, those Israelites would have been highly... Uh, aware of the fact that we need to come hear what's said too for no other reason so that we can contradict what he has to say. So this is what's going on. The end result is that there are lots, there are lots and lots of Jews and Gentiles streaming in and getting ready for this particular day of the synagogue. Now, the synagogue officials, no doubt, uh, must have thought it was Christmas and Easter. Right? Maybe they would call it P and Y. Christians. Instead of CEOs, Christmas, Easter only, people that show up on Christmas. You know, I'm glad this text wasn't here on Easter Sunday morning, but still, we may call them P&Ys back in that day. Passover and Yom Kippur Christians. They show up for those two days. Needless to say, I thought that was just a side note pretty good there. But people were gathering to find out what was going on at the synagogue. And notice how Luke states it. There's this tension building in the atmosphere of that day, you had the ones that had enthusiastically received the word of the Lord and the gospel. You had those who were skeptics. And then you had those who were just flat out angry at the teaching of the word. Uh, the fact that, that Paul would preach and Peter would preach that Israel's Messiah had come in the form of a crucified Jew. Remember Deuteronomy? Cursed is anyone who is hanged upon a tree. Of course, they didn't understand the fulfillment of that in Galatians 3. But the fact of the matter is... They're not real receptive to that kind of a gospel 
message. Verse 45 reveals the response of many of the Jews. Notice it. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, blaspheming him. Now, you think the Jews had on their Sunday best? I mean, they got their best clothes on. They're coming to their synagogue. By the way, it is their synagogue. Not just anybody's synagogue, but their synagogue. You wonder what their attitudes were when they came that day, when they looked up and saw all these Gentiles streaming into the synagogue. Do you think they might have said, that's my seat? Any of you Baptists ever done that here? When an outsider comes in, you're kind of looking over to make sure. Or you come in the back door and look over at your seat. That's where I've got to be, you know, in order for God to work. The thermostat has to be perfect in the auditorium. And I have to have my seat. That's my seat. There's no doubt that they had these attitudes. Uh, They could have looked up and said, wow, here comes a Gentile walking in here with long hair, tattoos, and an earring. I may have to sanitize my hands after he leaves, right? They got these attitudes that are building up. But the text says, really, it's not about where they're seated, uh, seated, which I'm sure they had those attitudes, but it's more about the jealousy. Because they had come to that synagogue for years and years, or a good amount of time, and they had been given their spill, and not many people came. But all of a sudden, the word of the Lord begins to be preached. People start showing up. We're told in Acts chapter 5 that it's the same kind of jealousy that they're filled with. So the reality is, they don't want others to hear what the Bible or what the Word of God had to say. So they're opposing the things that Paul would say. So here's the opposition. It's in the vein that Paul begins to preach the Word and begins to teach the Gospel. And they begin to cry out, well, that's not true. What about Moses? Uh, What about the law? What about this? And what about that? If you fast forward into Paul's writings, y'all do realize that in order to understand his epistles, you have to look at the missionary journeys because missionary one, two, three, those three journeys uh, began to fuel what Paul would write led by the Holy Spirit. So those 13 epistles that Paul wrote came out of the missionary journeys some particular time being written. So in Romans, think about how he says rhetorical questions like, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Why? Because somebody could have said, what are you teaching out there that we can, we just get saved free by God's grace and we don't have to do anything to get it? Yep, that's right. You know, you could hear people saying, what are you, what are you teaching? You're, you're dissing Moses. We, we've got to keep these certain requirements in order to be saved. And Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? They could have been saying, what are you trying to tell us? That no matter how much we sin, grace can save us? That's right. But as far as continuing the lifestyle, Paul says, what What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? What is our attitude once we come to faith in Christ? We don't sin thinking we're going to get more grace so we can sin all we want to. That's not how a born-again believer lives. We live as people who have been crucified to self. And so when he says that, he says, God forbid that that be our attitude. But as you read through the epistles, you began to pick up some of the things that were probably said to Paul as he preached in these synagogues and as he was a missionary for the Lord. And I'm sure it grew out of his personal experiences, listening to the Jews contradict him and oppose him. And then again, Luke uses this very strong word, blaspheming. It could just mean slander, as he spoke of a personal attack. However, he could be highlighting 
the fact that Paul was preaching Jesus and they were willing to say, we will not have this man rule us. It's very possible, and I think that's why he used the word, uses the word blaspheme, that they were speaking against God. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, there is a, an unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? It means you're antagonistic and you are rejecting the message concerning God. So, here's the deal when it comes to Paul using that word blaspheme. The fact of the matter is, in the Christian context, blasphemy, blasphemy would be rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord. Correct? That's exactly the height of the capital, number one sin, is to reject Jesus Christ as Lord. And they're antagonistic. They're blaspheming God. Because when you blaspheme the Son of God, you are blaspheming God. So in verse 36, Paul was really, really mellow and he was afraid of the crowd. Right? I mean, he was really prone on crowd control, but that's not what he does. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. This is a very, very uh, important word to Luke. He uses it in repetition all the way through Acts. He pulls it together with the Holy Spirit. With the Spirit in you comes boldness to speak. And so Paul uh, is preaching and he has incredible boldness. And he is not pulling any punches. He begins to give out the word of the Lord. Luke, again, will use this term boldness. Now did Paul know how his fellow Israelites could act? Who was it that held the clothes of the men who stoned Stephen? Well, it was Saul before he became Paul, correct? Uh, well, not, not the name changed. That's contradictory. The fact of the matter is, Paul, Hebrew name, uh, or Saul, Hebrew name. But the fact is, he knew how, what could happen when his people got riled up. Now, this could get ugly in a hurry. And yet he stood there in absolute boldness. Refused to be intimidated. The pressure and the opposition, they were mounting and he stood firm. He was unintimidated by those men. And he says to them, you are repudiating Christ. What an awesome statement. You are judging. Y'all see that there? You are judging yourself unworthy of eternal life. And Paul says, we're turning to the Gentiles. Now this may not come off as a big deal to you, but you understand how serious this is? To a Jew to be told that, hey, you're out. We're turning from you and we're turning our attention to the Gentiles. We think that there's nothing too derogatory about this. You may read that and think, well, Paul's just saying we're through playing marbles with you. And we're going to go play marbles with the Gentiles. No, that's not what's going on here. When he says this, it was incendiary, inflammatory language. For him to say to them... That we're turning to the Gentiles. This is the language that Jesus used in Luke chapter 4. That they wanted to kill him because of what he said. Same language. Now remember. When Paul makes this statement. What's in the back of his mind? Romans chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe to the Jew first. There was a missionary force. A missionary obligation that Paul knew came from the Lord, that the gospel needed to go to his own people first. And they're fulfilling that. And so this missionary obligation, 
to the physical children of Israel, of Abraham. That's what's going on. And the literal rendering of this statement is, you reject for yourselves Him, and you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. So Paul is laying upon them the blame of the worst possible sin. Rejecting Jesus Christ and counting yourself unworthy of eternal life. They're pushing Christ away. In biblical language, that sin of rejecting Him for yourself is insulting the spirit of grace. Uh, Hebrews will call it trampling underfoot the blood of the Son of God. So it's the sin of blaspheming the Son of God. The sin of rejecting Jesus Christ is the worst possible sin of all. And for those who spend eternity in hell, this is going to gnaw at you for all eternity. Why? Because of the opportunities that you heard from sermons and Bible lessons. Uh, your parents' pleas to you to turn to Jesus and not to the world. Uh, the numerous things that were said to you, you've pushed away the greatest gift that could ever be offered. When you do this, you're judging yourself unworthy of eternal life. This is the very basic language that Jesus used when he talked about the feast in the Gospels. You remember that story? Those who would not appropriately dress for the feast are declared to be unworthy for the feast. Same kind of terminology that Paul is using. So, he's putting the full weight, culpability, on those who have just rejected the message that he preached. Boy, you're talking about meddling now. You're talking about preaching the word and then turning right around and laying the indictment of culpability, the full weight upon them. No one's coercing them to disbelieve. No one's twisting their arm to reject the Lord. They freely rejected Him. It was not God they were rejecting, but themselves. Did y'all notice that in the way it's worded? This is always how unbelief manifests itself. The unbeliever thinks he's laying an indictment against God by saying, you're untrue, you're untrustworthy, you're unreliable. But in reality, unbelief, and in unbelief, the indictment against self is where, it, is where it really is. It's judging yourself unworthy of eternal life. Wow, what a statement. You're, when you reject Christ, you are judging yourself unworthy. The judgment is brought upon you. It's not an indictment upon the God who saves. It's an indictment upon the one who rejects. Wow, what a, what a statement. As one old theologian said, Why was I made to hear his voice and enter while there was room when thousands make that wretched choice and would rather starve than come? Wow. That's what's happening here. They make a choice to rather starve than come to Jesus, and thus they count themselves unworthy of eternal life. What did the Jew hear when they heard the phrase eternal life? Well, for a Hebrew, that was Israel's hope. Eternal life. And Paul turns around and says, you've counted yourself unworthy. You've judged yourself as unworthy of attaining eternal life. Why? Because they had rejected Jesus Christ. Paul proceeds to, to say something incredible here. Chapter, in our verse, given to us in verse 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, Do you know where that comes from? Isaiah 49, 6. Does anybody know what that's about? It's a messianic statement. In Isaiah, it is saying 
Jesus, you are going to be a light to the nations. It's talking about Jesus. But do you notice something interesting about Paul? When Paul uses this, he is saying that that we have been commissioned to be that light. Okay, y'all see this? It's important. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. In other words, in its context, Paul is preaching a sermon. And he is saying to them, Isaiah told Jesus Christ, you're going to be a light to the nations. But I'm telling you, the reason I'm preaching this to you is because Jesus, the same commission he had is the same commission we have. To be a light to the Gentiles. It's a servant song. And if you've ever read it, you know it's about Jesus. And then yet, the apostle turns around with missionary force, and he says, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, taking the gospel to the nations. Who was supposed to do that originally? Or why did God, what was God's primary commission upon the Israelites? To be a light to the nations. Have y'all read y'all's Bible? Right? That's why he commissioned them. Instead of being a light to the Gentiles, what happened to them? They became a barrier to the Gentiles. So when the true Israel comes, and his name is, right? The true vine, the true Israel, that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes, he accomplishes all that Israel failed to do. He's identified as the one who will be a light to the Gentiles. So this passage is quoted also in Luke chapter 2 when the Son of God entered this world. In human flesh, you will be a light to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the ends of the earth. You will bring salvation. So Paul presents this as a passage for a commission for you and me. For all of us to fulfill what God has called us to fulfill. In other words, we're commissioned to be a light to this world. This is why Jesus lets Paul know that to persecute the church is to persecute him. Do you all remember that when Paul is saved on Damascus Road? In uh, Acts 9, Jesus says to him, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul is thinking, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting these people who claim to love you. But Jesus said to persecute them is to persecute me. And so this is the same connection. Jesus is commissioned to be a light to the nations, and he commissioned his church to be a light to the nations. And Jesus said this, as the Father sends me, so send I you on that commission. So Paul was very aware of this. Let me ask you a question. Are we doing this? Do you see any differentiation between Christ coming into the world as a light to the Gentiles and you as a disciple being a light to the Gentiles? If you do, you're wrong. You should not see any differentiation between Christ's commission to take the, that He was going to be a light to the Gentiles and that's exactly what God has called you to be. We are commissioned to shine the light of Christ all around us. God help us to be conscious of this particular truth. Just as Jesus was a light to the world, you are called by God to be salt and light before the world. You know, we are either good conduits of light, or we are obscuring the light of Christ. I heard Herb Hodges once say this. We're either a bridge to others seeing Christ, or we're a barricade against those who would pursue Christ. Whichever way, we're either a bridge or a barricade. Which one are you? How are you doing? Are you a conduit of the light of Christ in this world, or are you obscuring that light? The commission to the Messiah is our commission. The commission given to Him is our commission. We're commissioned to be light 
to the nations. Now you think the atmosphere was electric in this place? As the word was preached, as there was a response of people coming to know Christ, and then you had the Jews opposing Paul. Whatever he would say as he preached, they were opposing what he had to say. Now notice how the Gentiles respond. Verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Isn't that awesome? I mean, just think of the tension in that place where the word is preached and there's opposition. Uh, There's skeptics in there. And then Paul gives this incredible announcement in the midst of all the anger and hostility. He makes this announcement that the gospel is to go to the Gentiles and Gentiles are like, whoopee! Right? I mean, other people are angry, but yet they're jumping up, high-fiving one another because the gospel was not only for them, but for their kinsmen. I mean, they're glorifying God and who they're giving the credit for it. They're not giving the credit for their salvation to themselves. That they found something that they needed to put on their shelves. It's the fact that God found them. That the grace of God and the word of God changed their lives. And the Bible says that they're rejoicing. What a Just think about this scene. Anger and hostility on one hand. And honor and praise to God on the other. All in the same room. Mixed reactions to the word of God as it is preached. And so, they're ecstatic. They're filled with joy. Uh, You've got to appreciate the scene. What is our tendency when uh, things get uncomfortable? We just kind of slump down a little bit and we get quiet. But even in the midst of it being quiet, as Paul is preaching and people are getting angry, you've got people who are ecstatic. And they're praising God for such a great salvation. They're giving Jesus Christ the credit. Now, in the midst of all of this, Luke gives us a theological analysis of his summary statement of what's going on that day in the synagogue. Are y'all ready for it? And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, the fact is, this is one of those verses that people like to jump over. It'd be better off if we just don't deal with this kind of passage. Y'all know me better than that, don't you? I'm not afraid of what the Word says. So, as many as were appointed believe. What do we make of this? We've got this amazing scene. We've got this highly emotional scene taking place. And Luke's going to throw in his theological analysis. Led by the Holy Spirit. Folks, you do know this is the Word of the Lord. Y'all do believe it, right? And he gives a theological analysis of what's going on. It's very similar to Acts 16. When it says that God opened the heart of Lydia on the riverbank. In other words, her heart was closed to the gospel. God opened her heart to the gospel. So Luke presents this thematic presentation all the way through the book of Acts. He is firm on the sovereignty of God. And we don't need to take attempts to duck this text. The word appointed means to put in place or to enroll or to register someone. That sound all right? Those who were appointed, enrolled, registered, enrolled, placed in order. Now all those who had been enrolled to eternal life believed. One scholar says this point to this verse. It excludes synergism. Y'all know what that is? Synergism is when two people are working together. Well, this is the way most people view their salvation. God did His part and I do my part. And everything's going to work out, right? 
God and me are in a co-op working together. Folks, I want to remind you, if this teaches you nothing else, it better teach you that God is sovereign over salvation, not you. It better teach you to have humility before God Almighty. Because when you read a statement like this, if you're a Bible student, you're going to slam on brakes at this one. And you're going to stop and you're going to think for a moment, God, what are you teaching us in this particular passage of Scripture? Do y'all think grammar is important? Now, when I was in high school, I didn't think it was too important. But when I sat in my first Greek class, I was like, whew, I wish I'd have paid more attention. Right? Because our Greek teacher had to teach us English, and we're still not too good at it. None of us are, really, if the truth be known. People in foreign countries speak better English than we do most of the time. But the fact is, grammar is important, especially here. And I want to tell you and testify to you that there's only one grammatical choice that we have here. You know, sometimes we go to the text and we say, well, man... There are a few things this could actually be saying. Not so when it comes to this particular passage of Scripture. You only actually have one grammatical option. Now here's what we have. Am I boring you? How many of you don't want to hear this? Raise your hand. All right, everybody on board? Okay, you said it. The clause has two verbal parts. It has a finite verb, which is believed. And then it has a participial phrase or participle, having appointed. That's the participial phrase. The participial part, the participle is in a perfect tense. It is a perfect participle in the Greek. And in this construction, the action of the perfect participle always is an antecedent to or prior to the action of the finite verb in the sentence. And you say, what in the world does that mean? Here's the significance. Having been appointed to eternal life is prior to antecedent to having believed. There is no other grammatical option. There's no way grammatically to get around this fact. So if Luke wanted to suggest that the action of God and the appointing of eternal life was synonymous with belief, then he would have used a present participle. But he didn't, folks. He used a perfect participle. So this is consistent in the New Testament. You do not have an occasion when you have a perfect participle in conjunction with a finite verb, that the, the antecedent is always the participle. Every single time. You can't get away from that. So all of those that God had priorly appointed to eternal life that day believed. Man, it makes us pause and stop, doesn't it? It makes us think, oh Lord, that's heavy. It is heavy. But you, don't just, you just don't jump over it and not preach it. You know what I'm bound to do? I'm bound to tell you not what any system in the world says. I'm bound to tell you what this book says. I have no allegiance to any theological system. I have an allegiance to what this book says. And this book says that those who were appointed on that day believed. So the immediate cause of their faith was the Word and the Spirit working together as Paul preached the Bible. Right? And the sinner came to the point of faith. But the ultimate cause was the divine appointment of the king who is sovereign over the entire world. That is the ultimate understanding. What should this do for us? By the way, the title of the sermon was An Eternal Appointment. And all of us have one. Don't we? An Eternal Appointment. This should do two things to us. First, this should absolutely humble everybody in this building. Do you realize that as you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, it was not a simply a belief that came from you, it was not your volition. It was not your strength or your power. 
When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, it was because God produced in you the fruit of His appointment in order for you to believe the gospel. Man, folks, does that not, you, does that not make you just want to get right on your knees before the sovereign God and say, Why was I able to hear your voice in the same room when thousands starve rather than come? Why was I able to hear your voice and come to the gospel? Why was that? You know, people who walk around so bogus, I mean, so hyped up. and Look, look what I did. That's not what salvation is supposed to do. Salvation is supposed to make you think, Oh Lord, I'm going to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ and it alone. I'm going to boast in the work of Jesus, the work of God for me. So the number one thing this ought to do is bring humility to us. Throwing all pride aside, we have to boast in the work of God for us. Mm, I would still be in my sins had it not been for that appointment. Y'all realize that? I'd be dead in my sins were it not for the appointment of God. And the second thing is, this ought to give us a catalyst to be willing boldly to proclaim the gospel. Why was Paul not afraid that day? Because God handles the appointments. Hello? Why was he so bold? Because he believed. In, if anybody believed in the sovereignty of God, it was Paul because he was trying to kill Christians and then turned right around and God put him on his back. Knocked him off his horse. I mean, he, knew under, he, knew, he fully understood. So we can be bold. It's not my persuasive speech that saves anybody. It's not my ability to package it in such a way where you're going to say, whoo, that's good. That's not how you're saved. You know, man, this just frees us up to give us the boldness to say salvation is of only of Jesus Christ. It gives us bold speech, not persuasive speech. Because if a single soul ever comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it's because God did it, not this preacher. It's God who saves. Charming words won't save a soul. Now, you ought to be winsome. And you ought to be, you ought to run up to somebody and say, turn or burn, brother. Right? You ought not be that way. But you need to be winsome and you need to be kind because the Bible tells us that. But certainly, our boldness comes because we know that Jesus saves. Salvation is of the Lord. So you know what you can do? You can have boldness as you pray for your kids. As you pray for your parents, family members, co-workers, neighbors. Keep sharing Jesus. Keep praying for them. Keep beseeching the throne of grace because God is the only one who can take care of the appointment. God is the only one that saves. Do you know this was the very foundation for all missionary endeavors that we're aware of? In the late 1700s, it was William Carey who firmly believed that God was sovereign. And how did guys like Carey and Fuller and Adoniram Judson, how did they go to India and Burma and all those places? And if you read the, the, the devotionals of these guys, man, it was dismal. It was dismal failure year after year after year after year as they preached the word. But here's what they knew. God will save his people. Just like Paul and Barnabas when they went out and preached. Why could they shake off the dust? Because God was responsible. God was in charge, right? God was handling these things. His word will not return void. Our God will accomplish his purposes. Now, according to verse 50... 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. I grew up in the south, and in the south you got a lot of things. But one thing that's aggravating is kudzu. Man, that stuff just reproduces. I mean, I remember seeing my grandmother's barn 25 years ago, and then before she sold it to drive back home, 
Man, that thing just got eaten by kudzu, right? Just, well, this is what the word is doing. Spreading. Whatever terminology you use in Missouri for a plant that just super spreads, that's kind of the understanding here of what's going on. The word of the Lord is spreading. The gospel is penetrating in the most unlikely places. And every time it advanced, something interesting took place. People went out and started golfing. Right? They said, you know what? Why do we need to go to a church meeting? We can worship Jesus anywhere we want to worship Jesus. It's just as easy to worship on the golf course as it is in church on Sunday morning. Is that what's in there? No, folks. Every single time the Word of God advanced, churches sprung up. Right? That's because that's God's mandate. That's how God intends to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's why this church sends out missionaries like Katie and Kyle. And why we go on mission for the Lord. Why? Because it's, the, it's God's mandate. So here is Paul and Barnabas who are doing exactly what God would have them to do. But look at verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing. And we know what the men did in leadership. Folks, when God is at work, the devil's also at work. And that's exactly what's true even in this church. When God is doing something, when we're threatening the enemy, I can guarantee that the enemy is going to rear his head against us. And there's this smear campaign. And the terminology really brings out that it becomes more of a political thing. They're just hurting our income and hurting our city. Just get them out of here. So they're escorted out of the city. But isn't it great as you read that the church doesn't fall apart? I mean, how would y'all respond if the uh, town officials came in here? Right? And just ran off your preachers. Just ran us out of here. How would y'all respond? Well, the first thing we'd probably do is write a letter to our congressman. We just can't. What's going on in this country of freedom? I mean, we can't even have preachers because they're run out of town. What would be our response? Draft a letter to our congressman to say that this is just not right. Why are y'all picking on our little ministers? Right? But that's not the response that these guys had. They didn't start a picket line. They didn't say, how dare you treat our ministers this way. Here's what they did. They shook off the dust from the feet, from their feet against them and traveled on. Do you remember what Jesus said? Or wrapping up. Remember what Jesus said? He gave these instructions, did he not? Shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. What does that mean? Well, really it means that for the Jew, you're just like pagan Gentiles when it comes to Jesus. Well, that, that, that's incendiary language, is it not? Shake off the dust. Uh, do you remember, again, it was a tradition of Jew-Gentile relationships. That shake off the dust came from their relationship. So, again, in the book of Revelation, John will call the Jewish synagogues who had rejected Jesus, he actually calls them synagogues of Satan. What terminology against the Jews? So, here's the disciples filled with joy. The gospel of Jesus Christ was so overwhelmingly wonderful that they wasn't licking their wounds, but they were worshiping God. They were praising God that they were counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. The persecution could not quench the joy of Jesus. And in our day, if it snows on Sunday morning, it quenches the joy of Jesus, right? And man, they were under severe persecution, but it did not quench the joy of Jesus. God was at work. It is my prayer. For this church family, that the word of the Lord will be so uh, wonderful to you, that the joy of Jesus will captivate you so much that we become this kind of witness in our region. Right? 
that we would have such joy in Jesus that we do this. May our joy empower us to be witnesses to Him. No one is ever outside the grace of God. God can save anybody, anywhere, anytime. No bounds. No discrimination. Right? God can save anybody. Perhaps uh, many of you are familiar with the Bible, but you've never trusted Jesus. Can I remind you of something? The Jews knew their Bible better than you. But they were not saved. They knew their Old Testament better than you know the New Testament or the whole Bible. They knew the Bible. But knowing a few verses of Scripture does not qualify you for heaven. You might be able to quote 30 verses that you learned in Bible drill. But the fact of the matter is you've got to come to faith in the living Savior in order to be saved. You've got to put your faith in Him. Perhaps today you're a genuine born-again believer. Well, you need to be ready. You need to know the Bible. Because there are people out there that God is calling and you need to be the one who's sharing. Right? Perhaps you are zealous to share the good news, but you're not ready for the opposition. Guess what? I think opposition continues to mount in our country. You need to be ready and willing. Our job is not to find out who's on the roll. Are y'all listening? Our job is to go facilitate what it takes for the people on the roll to believe. Amen? That's your call from God. To facilitate. To give the gospel of Jesus Christ and not worry about who's on the roll. So here's the deal. So go in the power of the Holy Spirit to the nations and offer them forgiveness in Jesus Christ's name. As Tony Morita says, grab your Bible, your passport, and even your first aid kit. How's that sound to you? Well, we like the Bible part, but first aid kit, you better believe it because it's going to cost you. So grab your Bible, your passport, your first aid kit, and make the gospel known to this dark world. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for grace. God, just thinking about men like John Newton who would write a song like Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. God, help us to know That we can have boldness and confidence to witness and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Knowing that you're sovereign. You're in control. God, you can handle the opposition. God, give us boldness to proclaim that Jesus saves. Let us be a light to the nations to tell them that there is forgiveness in no other than Jesus Christ. And for those among us, Lord, we're all timid. Uh, We're all easily intimidated. God, give us boldness. To speak your word. To proclaim the gospel message. Father, for lost people. Lord, they may be familiar with you. Familiar with the Bible. Familiar with much of the church. But Lord, unless they put their faith in you. Then there's no salvation. For by grace are we saved through faith. That not of ourselves is the gift of God. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. God, would you save your people today? God, would you do it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.